At a time like this, it's easy to see why local news is so important and why that news should be free for everyone who needs it to be. Your support of KCUR makes this essential reporting possible. If you can, please donate. KCUR.org slash give. And thanks. Good morning and welcome to Up to Date Special Coverage Coronavirus in Kansas City. I'm Steve Kraske. Today we take your questions for our expert panel about the coronavirus, your medical concerns, your mental health worries, and questions about how the Kansas City community is going to protect the most vulnerable among us. Our phone lines are open right now, 816-235-2888, and don't think we've all covered it before. If you're wondering about something, chances are others are wondering. First, though, an update on the news, and joining us now is Shawnee Mission School Superintendent Michael Fulton, who just learned yesterday that his schools and all the schools throughout Kansas will be closed for the remainder of the 2020 school year. Superintendent Fulton uh, joins us now. Uh, Mr. Superintendent, nice to have you. Good morning. Thank you. How surprised were you that the administration of Governor Laura Kelly closed schools for the rest of this current school year? Well, it's given the national scene and and the Kansas um, the Kansas outbreak. It was uh, it was not overly surprising. We were we've been planning for some time, anticipating what worst case scenarios might be, and that was certainly on our radar screen as a as a potential scenario. I gather this means that you don't necessarily get to go on vacation here, uh, Superintendent. Do, do you plan to continue some form of online education? And if you do, what about kids and, I guess, teachers, for that matter, who don't have access to computers? Well, we're very fortunate in that all of our teachers do have laptops. We also, uh, most of our students also have digital devices that we encourage to take home with them prior to going on spring break this week. The exception is our K through uh, two students do not have uh, devices at home with them. Um, but um, we are, uh, we're prepared to work with our staff next week to begin to develop a plan whereby we can continue, can continue to educate our students at some baseline level through an online uh, environment. How tricky is that going to be? It's, there are a lot of logistical details to work out, I bet. whether it's access to the Internet, um, being able to work with students, whether individually or in groups of students, to push lessons out to them. And that's why we're going to need it all of next week to get a baseline plan established with our staff. But we have a great staff. We have wonderful teachers, and I'm confident that we'll come up with a plan that will at least get us started uh, with our students in the, in the near future. Superintendent Fulton, what about feeding kids who live in homes where food insecurity might be an issue? Sure. Um, they, we are in the process this week of doing deep cleaning of our buildings. Next week, we will begin handing out sack lunches <clears throat> to children ages 1 through 18 at defined locations in our school district, and we'll be communicating those locations uh, to our community at some point uh, later this week. I'm also wondering about working parents who were counting on the schools to be open this spring. What about the possibility of child care for those folks? There's been a lot of discussion among the Johnson County School Districts in cooperation with Johnson County government about the issue of child care. At this point, we have a task force that's been developed 
that's going to look specifically at how we can meet the needs of healthcare workers during the pandemic. And so that's going to be our first step in trying to address, address child care needs. It's going to be very difficult to, to uh, provide child care uh, at, at a, the kind of scale that might be desired countywide. Mm-hmm. So we're going to start with health care workers, and then I'm assuming that uh, in, in addition to school districts in the county, there will also be uh, private groups, churches, et cetera, that may also be choosing to enter into that space. But that's yet to be seen. I'm getting the impression there are lots of moving parts here. There are a lot of moving parts. Some of them we know. Some of them have yet to be discovered. But we're going to take this one step at a time and do the very best we can to make sure that we're taking care of our children, our staff, and our community. And just from reading about this, I get the impression you're working in coordination with other superintendents from Johnson County. Do I have that right? That is absolutely correct. We have been meeting throughout the week at to talk about ways that we can collaborate on issues that range from learning to uh, providing basic supports like food to uh, providing uh, needed uh, child care for health care workers. And there'll be other issues as this goes along that we'll, that we'll collaborate on. So there's a very, very tight partnership among Johnson County superintendents. We have also been talking with our uh, folks in both uh, other superintendents in Kansas and on the Missouri side as well. That's Shawnee Mission School Superintendent Michael Fulton. Mr. Superintendent, thanks for taking some time, and we wish you all the best. Thank you very much. Okay. Okay, let's turn to our main topic this morning, and that's getting answers to your questions about this ongoing pandemic and what all this means for you. We have a great panel this morning, and they're here to take your questions at 816-235-2888 or tweet us at KCUR up to date. This forum is meant for you, our listeners, and trying to clear the air on so many issues that are clouding our, our thinking these days about this pandemic. With us today, Katie Kriegshauser is director of the Kansas City Center for Anxiety and Treatment. Katie, nice to have you. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Here to talk about the virus itself is Dr. Marianne Jackson. She's a professor and the interim dean of the UMKC School of Medicine. Dr. Jackson, nice to have you. Good morning, Steve. Jim McDonald's also here. He's the Chief Community Investment Officer for the United Way of Greater Kansas City. Jim, good morning to you. Good morning, Steve. Dr. Jackson, let's begin with you, and I'm wondering how prepared you think Kansas City is as the coronavirus continues spreading. How are we when it comes to hospital beds? How, how are we standing when it comes to ventilators right now? So what I can tell you is that there has been intense preparation for all of our hospitals within our region to prepare in all ways if we see a surge of COVID-19 disease. Do we have enough beds? Do we have enough ventilators? I think nationally we can say we do not have enough beds. We do not have enough ventilators. But we need to now more than ever abide by the public health recommendations to distance ourselves, to stay home if sick, to make sure we're doing enhanced hand hygiene and surface cleaning, and that we quarantine 
uh, as we are being asked to by public health. Now more than ever, there is no over-preparation, I think, at this point on the table. So disrupting this virus as much as we can is paramount, a paramount concern right now. You've heard the term uh, flatten the curve. Mm -hmm. And what this means is that knowing what we know about viral spread and with this incubation period of about five days, we'll double the number of cases we'll see in a week and a week and a week after. So you can see how the numbers would spike very quickly quickly. And what we're trying to do is by distancing people, decrease the number of infections that will occur, spread them out so we have better capacity to care for patients. You know, Dr. Sanjay Gupta was on CNN last night. I just happened to catch him. And he made the point that people should act like they already have the virus as a way to help them take proper precautions. What do you make of that advice? I think uh, that's very reasonable advice. I mean, if you think about it that way, I think people are going to take a more proactive approach. And right now, what we can say is we are all in this together. And each person has to be proactive in the changes in their life. And that is a reasonable way to think this through. Uh, Katie Kriegshauser, there's a certain level, I guess, of panic out there. What's what's causing that? Well, at the core of all anxiety, which is my specialty area is treating anxiety disorders, is difficulty tolerating uncertainty. And right now, we are all flooded with really unprecedented amounts of uncertainty about what the future is going to hold, um, about what's really going on. And so I see uncertainty as the core of the panic that we're seeing right now. If someone said COVID-19 is a scary thing for a lot of people, why shouldn't I panic? What would you say? Well, I think some degree of anxiety is is warranted in this situation. Some anxiety is actually quite adaptive. We see anxiety as something that prepares us for action, that tells us we actually need to do something. So I completely agree with this idea of we need to act like we uh, can take a part in flattening the curve. Our anxiety should be motivating us to follow the recommendations to stay home if we can to social distance. What can people do to manage their panic and anxiety? Do you have any sort of general thoughts there? Absolutely, I do. Um, luckily, we do have great tools for managing anxiety out of the um, out of cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, which is an evidence-based intervention for anxiety. Some of those things that we recommend for individuals with anxiety, whether that's chronic anxiety or just acute anxiety given the current situations would be the following. One would be keep a structure to your days. Keep some uh, structure so you're um, maintaining some sense of normalcy. Stay engaged with others. Take advantage of digital technologies to some extent. Use FaceTime. Use Skype. Connect with loved ones. Um, have virtual hangouts. That's what I'm advising most of my teen patients to do right now That's to stay connected. Yeah. Um, and to limit knowledge consumption. So really set a limit on how many times you're going to check Facebook, how many times you're going to check um the World Health Organization or CDC websites. And if people think this technology is super complicated, I'm here to tell you, I'm, I'm a big advocate of Zoom now at UMKC. It's not hard. If I can do it, 
lots of people can do it. Oh, absolutely. And that's what we've been doing. We've been switching to telehealth for yeah. all of my patients as well. And it's gone. There have been a few hiccups, of course, but it's gone relatively smoothly. Jim McDonald with the United Way. Um, United Way 211 is a number that people can call to get access to all manner of services in our community. Tell us a little more about what that is, Jim, and how it works. Sure. Yeah. United Way 211 is a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week information and referral helpline uh, focused on connecting uh, people in need to social service programs across the region. Um, we uh, operate the program through the use of uh, trained call specialists who work in a call center and receive phone calls from people in, in need. And those specialists use as their primary tool a database that houses uh, information about 8,000 social service programs uh, across 2,000 um, nonprofit organizations and government agencies throughout the 23-county region. So this is a way to connect, particularly for people in our community who are the most vulnerable here. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I think one of the ironies of this current situation is that one of the biggest social service challenges that we face is social isolation and the, and the consequences of that. And yet that's what's called for in, you know, in the current crisis. Um, I'd like to also just add that for people to get connected to a call specialist, they simply need to dial the numbers 211 in the same way that you might dial 911 or 411. Right. And uh, we also have access to resources uh, online uh, through our website at unitedawaygkc.org, and you just click on the Get Help button. And this is for what, what counties are covered by 211 here? We, we serve a 23-county region, you know, the, the, the broader, you know, Kansas City region. Uh, but 211 is a national network, so virtually no matter where you are um, in the country, you can get connected to a 211 call specialist. Okay. Our listeners now have been introduced to our panel. You get a sense of their range of expertise. Our phone number here, 816-235-2888, or tweet us at KCUR, up to date. Lots of calls coming in. Bridget from Pleasanton on the Kansas side. Bridget, good morning. Hi. Hi, Bridget. I am concerned. I, I am really concerned. The churches have shut down. They distribute the federal food program from harvesters. It's delivered from harvesters. Harvesters won't answer their phone. There's no way to get the monthly fee tap or the senior box, senior commodities. I don't think Kansas City has prepared anyone, anyone. I make $13,000 a year on Social Security. And and I can't go out and buy this food that we need. Right. Well, let me get a couple of our panel members to comment here. Jim, do you want to talk about food pantries and what might be available out there? Yes. Uh, so I would say that uh, the, the network of literally scores of food pantries um, throughout the region is alive and well. Um, the reality is, though, they're changing how they conduct business. Um, I spoke yesterday with Valerie Nicholson Watson, who's the CEO of Harvesters, um, and Harvesters has sort of a, a disaster response plan. And one of the things they have is what they refer to as a disaster cohort, I believe. And these are larger organizations who have greater capacity to conduct food distributions uh, during a crisis or an emergency. Um, so they're turning to those partners as we speak, and they're busily working on a way to get people connected 
um, who might not have access to resources through a food pantry that they normally rely upon. Um, I would encourage uh, the caller to reach out to United Way 211, and one of our call specialists can help her uh, find uh, resources through a different location. So the notion that harvesters might not be answering its phone calls might be indicative of the fact that there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes here. Yes. Yeah. Dr. Jackson? So one of the things that I'm emphasizing and what the caller brings up is the importance of communicating with clarity of message. So as we take steps to prioritize the safety of patients, their families, and their our healthcare staff, there may be issues like this that come up. And we want to make sure that we join together with all of our agencies within the Kansas City and our region to make sure that those messages are getting out there to the people who are worried about them. And and Katie, uh, you could hear a lot of anxiety in Bridget's voice and what she's experiencing. I think a lot of folks are going through right now. Oh, absolutely. Once again, we're all faced with a lot of uncertainty. So I think it is very important for agencies to have to be very proactive with getting a message out there about how people can contact them, how people can access services so people can better manage their anxiety about this situation. Bridget, I hope that information is helpful. Thank you very much. Let me go to Christopher from Kansas City, Missouri. Christopher, you're on our show. Good morning. Good morning. Hi. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Go ahead. Oh, uh, my question is, uh, I used to work in a local um, health care laundry uh, facility, and that's very hands-on. You know, it's like all the sheets, pillowcases, bath blankets, everything that that doctor's offices and health clinics and hospitals use are are processed in these health care laundries. And I'm just wondering, are all the employees being tested and are they wearing gloves and face masks? Because it's it's very hands-on. You touch everything. So, and that all goes out to the hospitals and the doctors' offices and everything else. So, right. I'm I'm just curious. <laughs> what about uh, Dr. Jackson? What can you tell us about precautions that uh, health, medical workers and healthcare workers are taking right now? So, there's not a recommendation to wear gloves as you handle laundry, for instance. That surprises me. Within within your daily life, enhancing hand hygiene, making sure services are cleaning, and making sure you're socially distanced is going to be most commonly the strategies that are going to reduce the spread. So what we're worried about within those uh, businesses that must stay open, that are essential to functioning, is that no one who's sick should be there and that all should have enhanced their hand hygiene. And businesses are going to have to find a way to distance their uh, employees as they work. And so I can't speak specifically to what laundries are doing, but the principles of public health are going to be the same for all of us uh, with with modifications uh, depending on uh, what individuals would be. For instance, you've seen our first responders that are not going in to homes right now. 
uh, for instance, police officers, they're staying outside, they're finding out Hmm. what the information is, they're keeping their six feet distance. So everybody's on the fly changing how they function. But we are still going to fall back on these public health measures that we know are the core of how we fight pandemics. But even if you're wearing gloves, uh, germs can be transferred. I worry very much about people thinking they are protected by wearing gloves because you can contaminate gloves. And then I see people doing multiple different tasks with these gloves on. That is not the solution. If you're just joining us, you're listening to special coverage of Up to Date, the coronavirus uh, in Kansas City. If you have questions for our panel, 816-235-2888 or tweet us at KCUR Up to Date. Scott from Leavenworth. Scott, you're on the show. Uh, hello. Um, I just had kind of a technical question. I noticed online that they had several stories about people uh, possibly the, the virus flaring up in the system again and then killing them. This is in China, mind you. But Scott, slow down a little bit. You're going. I can't quite track you here. Slow down a little bit. Okay. Okay. So, has anyone been pathogenically cleared 100% of the virus? And if so, uh, what is the the rate? You know, what is the the time frame for pathogenically you know pathogenically cleared in their system? So, this is the virus in their system, 100% out, basically. Yeah, Dr. Jackson, can you uh, shed any light on that? This idea of being pathologically cleared of the virus. There are very precise recommendations for how we clear patients, and that is they need to have a negative test, two of them, with 24 hours in between before they're considered to be cleared, and you have to have public health uh, clearance to get back into action. So we do have this information. There are uh, scientific gaps in our knowledge, and so how long you may be positive is not clear, but we know that we are not releasing people back even though the vast majority of individuals are recovered, yeah. the vast majority. Uh, but those are the public health recommendations for how we clear in- individuals. Kitty, I just can't help but reflect on what we're talking about here. There is so much tension associated with this whole thing. And your comments earlier about finding ways to connect with people at a time like this strike me as just simply so spot on. Oh, absolutely. It's something that we recommend for individuals who are feeling isolated, which is really, I think, what a lot of us are experiencing yes. right now who are who are staying in our homes. And we're only in the very early stages of this thing. Exactly. So I think we need to come up with strategies now that are going to be sustainable. Um, I've seen people come up with really clever solutions um, online. Like stand, standing uh, FaceTime dates on Friday nights with friends <laughs> across the country. Um, I know a lot of my best friends are spread out across the country. So I think If anything, if there is a silver lining, this is a way for a lot of us to think about how do we get creative in connecting with others, delivering healthcare uh, in different ways, um, and really building community when we can't physically be together. If people have some creative ideas about how to connect during this time, just to Katie's point, I'd like to hear them. 816-235-2888. Jim, um, I'm also wondering, as we talk about United Way 211 is this way to connect with so many people here, what if people don't have a phone or access to the internet? The libraries are shut down, at least many of them are. What are you advising on that on that front? Sure. Yeah. Well, um, this is you, tough for some people. Yeah, you do need to get to a phone uh, or a, um, a, de- a device that's connected to the internet. Um, we recently rolled out uh, a mobile 
app, well, not such an app, but a, a mobile version of mm-hmm. our website, um, which is very user-friendly. So mm-hmm. my recommendation to anyone in that situation would be to uh, borrow someone's phone, um, to either call a call specialist um, or to utilize uh, the mobile version of our website where you can search for community resources on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, you do need to get to some kind of communication um, vehicle, whether it's a telephone um, or a computer or a device of some kind. Right. I'm wondering, as you work your networks here, to what extent are the resources that you're outlining prepared for this influx that we all think is coming due to COVID-19? Sure, yeah. So I guess the first thing I would say is that you know, there's a disaster response community. There are institutions in place uh, to uh, address times like these. Mm-hmm. Um, and community organizations, social service providers, and others um, within the nonprofit sector are very much a part of that network and a part of that res- community response. Um, you know, we're a part of uh, a group that meets on a regular basis, even times when there, there isn't a crisis looming. Um, so I'd say that there's a high degree of preparedness. Um, at the same time, I'd say there's also um, a high degree of scarcity in our society. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the work of the social service organizations, uh, it, you know, almost without exception, um, are rooted in public-private partnerships where government has a role to play. Um, you know, within our uh, nonprofit partner agencies, um, I'd say probably about 40 percent of their funding in any given year comes from government grants or contracts. So there's a large role for the government to play. Uh, We're watching very closely to see the fate of the legislation that's pending in Congress that would provide payments to households. Um, The amount of money that will be put into the economy and into the pockets of people in need um, will, by the government, will vastly dwarf the kind of resources that our social service partners have access to. Again, the administration talking about getting those checks out to people within a couple of weeks is what uh, the yes. administration was saying yesterday. Okay, back to some phone calls here as you listen to up-to-date special coverage, coronavirus in Kansas City, 816-235-2888. We got one line uh, more available here. Option two is to tweet us at KCUR up-to-date. Let's go to Michelle from Olathe. Michelle, you're on the show. Good morning. Good morning. Go ahead, Michelle. Okay, so I am on my way to go get my nine-year-old. He just turned nine, and I work pretty closely one-on-one with people in the job I do. I'm a massage therapist. As of now, the chiropractor office I work for is open. I took this week off to spend with my kids, and I, my concern is that he has asthma. He's already had the flu this year and other and another upper respiratory infection. His lung health isn't fully back to normal yet. And how at risk is he? How careful do I need to be? Do I need to just take off work? And definitely I'm a single mother. You right. know, I'm not trying to panic, but I'm trying to, you know, I have a lot of friends who are out of work indefinitely, so I'm not as worried about the finances as I am about making sure I'm keeping my son healthy. Well, Michelle, the best we can do is offer you sort of some general advice here. And Dr. Jackson, what would you say to Michelle, who's got a nine-year-old with asthma and works closely with people in her own occupation? Okay, for the... For the most part, children have been spared the severe outcomes seen in the senior population and in those with underlying medical conditions, but we're fully aware that the scientific data is limited to say precisely how vulnerable children are 
I fully suspect that we're going to find, and we're finding already, many children with mild infection, but there will be children who, and those that are most vulnerable, are those with the most severe of the underlying conditions. Mm -hmm. They are likely that same group of individuals in the pediatric population who suffer severe consequences, uh, for instance, uh, of influenza. So what I would say for individuals who have someone in their family who is high risk because of age or an underlying condition, yes, you do want to start now in limiting not only their, but your interaction with individuals, particularly that close interaction that would come from uh, massage therapy. And then that might, Michelle, that might wind up compromising your income, though, I can I can just imagine. Uh, yeah, you know, so I'm, I'm like, yeah, I'm just trying to find the balance of, is it possible for me to just wash my hands and be very, and change my clothes and but it, again, I, if I get myself sick and then expose him, so yeah, I appreciate the uh, advice. I'm just trying to figure out what to do. And Michelle, I appreciate your 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 difficulty here. That's a that's a tough one, and uh, we wish you the best. Thank you. I appreciate you guys. You bet. Uh, Again, you're listening to -to up-to-date special coverage of coronavirus in Kansas City. I'm Steve Kraske. We're talking today with a panel of experts about uh, a whole range of issues surrounding this virus. Uh, We're going to take a short break here, and when we come back, we'll continue our conversation. We'll get lots of phone calls here from Jake and Susan and Dan. Again, I'm Steve Kraske. You're listening to -to up-to-date special coverage, coronavirus in Kansas City. And welcome back. I am Steve Kraske. A quick note, the White House is holding a coronavirus task force briefing and KCUR will provide NPR special coverage beginning uh, at the beginning of the briefing at 1030. KCUR is here to provide you with accurate, up-to-date and fact-based information in these unprecedented times. Again, we'll be going to live coverage of the White House coronavirus task force briefing at 1030 this morning. This hour, we're uh, conducting a panel with a group of three folks who are experts in various areas. Uh, We have Dr. Marianne Jackson here from the UMKC School of Medicine, Jim McDonald with the United Way of Greater Kansas City, and Katie Kriegshauser, who's the director of the Kansas City Center for Anxiety and Treatment. Our phone number, 816-235-2888, or tweet us at KCUR up to date. Jim McDonald, I was wondering, coming out of this break here, if you could clarify for us again. Give us a sense of the range of services, the range of the different kinds of help that people might get if they dial 211. Sure. It really runs the gamut of health and human services, though uh, the most frequent calls and requests for help that we receive are related to basic needs. So things related to housing stability. Um, so, you know, get it, keeping your rent current, keeping your utilities on, which is especially important because if you don't keep your utilities on, you risk uh, eviction. Right. Uh, if you're a renter, um, we connect people uh, to um, health care resources. Uh, we connect people to mental health resources. Um, we connect people to child care resources. Um, so it is a wide variety of things, but the greatest number of calls relate to those kind of basic needs 
um, that help a household kind of make their way in the world. Yeah. Katie, I'm also wondering if in the wake of this uh, pandemic, if the whole notion of telehealth is going to take a giant leap forward as people begin to grapple with the idea that face-to-face meetings with therapists might not be in their best interest right now. Absolutely. So we have switched to 100% telehealth services at our center right now. Um, And I'm seeing communities of psychologists um, through various professional organizations reaching out, uh, connecting with one one another. And luckily, our field was already moving towards uh, telehealth. I have many colleagues who do operate exclusively through telehealth. So we're a field that's actually been unbeknownst to us preparing for this situation. And many of us have switched over to telehealth platforms. There are many that are HIPAA compliant that we've been able to switch over to quite easily. Um, And so I think we're going to see many more people getting access to care. This is one other area where we've seen that many individuals don't want to come into a therapist's office for one reason or another. And so One other way we can look at the situation is individuals who currently need care can access it from their home, whether Mm -hmm. they're existing patients or new patients. Is there any downside to it? Right now, is it as effective? I don't know why it wouldn't be, but I'm just asking the question. There is good evidence that that telehealth um, or psychotherapy over televideo um, is as effective. We don't have any evidence right now that uh, that specific elements that are important are lost over televideo. Okay, lots of phone calls here. We're going to start working through them now at 816-235-2888. Susan from Roland Park, uh, you're on up-to-date special coverage, coronavirus in Kansas City, Susan. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for being here. Um, I'm wondering about going to the bank to the drive-thru. I'm in the elderly group, and I wonder if that's safe um, or what practices I should follow and we should follow to do that. Even going to the bank through the drive through Dr. Jackson, what might you recommend? Individuals need to go to the grocery store. They need to go to the bank. They need to go to places that are essential. So your first question is, is it essential that I get out and do this? The second piece of this is, may I maintain my six-foot distance in between myself and other individuals? So going through the drive through is going to be a relatively safe uh, outing. When you go to the grocery store, we're recommending that seniors go very early in the morning when there's decreased traffic and that they maintain their six-foot distance as they're in line uh, and that they are uh, using hand hygiene uh, before and after. You know, it's a, I hope that helps, Susan. Maybe thank having you. a bottle of sanitizer oh, in the car might not be a so bad much. idea thank either. You. Yeah. All the best to you, Susan. Great. You know, I was really struck last night. I, I ride my bike to work often, and I drove home last night about 6.30, and I have to be on the Ward Parkway area for a little while. At 6.30 last night, during rush hour traffic normally, there was hardly any cars on the, on the, on the road. I was out in the street with no one out there to, to worry about uh, bumping me, and usually I'm on the sidewalk. Traffic has really decreased. People are paying attention. People are paying attention, and there are certain things that you can do and should do. Getting outside to take a walk, you can and should do. Uh, taking your dog for a walk, and in fact, is going to be a healthy thing to do because you're getting exercise, the dog is getting out, but you're still limiting your contact with others. I noticed the same thing as I drove home last night, and I think it's part of the fabric of Midwesterners that we are listening and we are moving forward uh, and understanding uh 
what we can do on a personal level. Katie, there's free therapy for you. Get out and take a walk during the day. Oh, absolutely. I'm actively encouraging people that even though we're social distancing, we're taking these measures, that doesn't mean you have to stay in your house. You can be in your backyard. You can go for a walk. I myself took my dog for a walk last night and I saw a lovely uh, message a mother and her daughter had painted on their front door, have hope, and it had a rainbow. And I'm seeing people do wonderful things like that that really lift people's spirits. Now, Dr. Jackson, we're getting lots of questions from various Facebook communities about testing. Uh, how, where, uh, any sense of where people can go, our guidelines uh, for testing changing at the federal level, what, what, can, what, can, what light can you shed on that? So I'm going to give you a twofold answer. One is that we are not at the point now where we have enough tests. We don't have the media in some cases that we need to place specimens in. We don't have the swabs that we need for the testing. And we don't have testing platforms that are available with a fast enough turnaround time to allow us to make the good decisions that testing always requires. So what do we do in pandemics? This is not the first one. In fact, I would say I would I have lived through this is my fifth pandemic, the last one being 2009. We know we want to identify, isolate and test, confirm infections, do contact tracing of anyone who is positive, and use appropriate quarantine. So those are just the principles of public health. Without testing, we cannot do that. But how what- confident are you will have more testing within a couple of weeks? I'm not highly confident that a couple of weeks is going to give us that timeline, but I think all testing is ramping up and it will steadily improve. So what we'll see right now is we're only going to, if you think about this as the tip of the iceberg, we're only going to be identifying cases that are the most severe at the tip of the iceberg. Once we have more testing that is available, we'll be able to identify that denominator. That means how many are infected with mild disease. How many, right now we're saying 80% have mild, 20% have severe. Of that 20% with severe, 25% of those would be more serious. And then we have this estimate that it has twice the mortality rate of seasonal influenza. We will have data. We're always data informed in science, and we don't have the data now. But the second part of this is parents worry about their children. Mm-hmm. And even though children are likely going to have the mildest of disease, they may be the spreaders, in fact, uh, of infection. And your pediatrician, your pediatric provider is taking all kinds of uh, opportunities to change how they practice by keeping their waiting rooms off limits, by moving patients into exam rooms, we'll still continue to provide vaccines and uh, anticipatory guidance for our youngest patients, but we're going to reschedule exams as we need to. In cases where a child is ill, they may come to your car to check the child out. Here's the important piece of that. We do not want our healthcare system flooded with mildly ill individuals thinking that they may be able to access testing because that is just not possible at this time. It's not necessary for the care of the child or the patient. And so we need to fall back on exactly what we did in 2009 with the H1N1 
uh, pandemic, and that is identifying who does need to seek health care. There's also the news from KCUR's Dan Margulies, Dr. Jackson, that a cl- clinical diagnostics lab in Lee Summit has developed this test for the novel coronavirus that it says is more than 99% accurate. Viracor Eurofin says it can perform more than 1,000 tests a day and get the results back the same day. How significant a development is that? Is that the answer or not? Well, it's part of the answer. Uh, we know that they have the platform. Uh, we know that we may overwhelm their capacity to do the number of tests that they say they may do and to give us that turnaround time in the 24 hours. It is not just Viracor that is going to be overwhelmed by the number of tests that come in as new platforms come on board and we have new opportunities uh, for practitioners to send the test. It's every one of our platforms across the country are going to see the same thing. So until we get more and more availability of those who are testing, we will still have the problem with having enough swabs. You can't do a test if you don't have a swab. Having the swab to put in a viral media. We don't have the viral media right Mm -hmm. now to even get that done. And then as we flood into their system for testing, they may well be overwhelmed uh, at the very beginning. Okay, let me go back to some phone calls here and Jake from Olathe. Jake, you're on up to date. Hi there. Yeah, I have kind of a, uh, a, a rumor mill from the Internet question. Um, so there's been a lot of speculation and rumor milling that uh, either there is a situation where people are getting reinfected uh, or there could be and that the outcome would be elevated risk of uh, immune overreaction leading to severe adverse outcomes, uh, sort of drawing a comparison between the current pandemic and the multiple waves of Spanish flu, where the second wave was much more deadly. Um, And I'm just wondering if there's any actual evidence of either reinfection in anyone so far, and if reinfection does in fact have a higher risk of developing these, uh, you know, various severe immune reactions. I'm glad you asked the question, Jake. What about reinfection, Dr. Jackson? So it's something that we worry about. And um, I will tell you that the caller is completely correct, that we're falling back on uh, the science of uh, the Spanish flu outbreak in 1918. And in fact, the first wave of disease uh, was noted. We did social distancing then very effectively, as a matter of fact, and the second wave turned out to be more severe. So we know that this can happen with viruses. Will it happen with this virus? We do not know at this point, but we'll have some data from China, we think, as they're releasing some of their social distancing recommendations at this point, and we'll see if there is an additional wave because they have, and they in Korea have done testing and have done testing very efficiently to note whether or not their population will indeed get reinfected, which is very likely. Viruses tend to do that. Uh, Respiratory syncytial virus, for instance, influenza virus, many of us get those infections every single year, Mm -hmm. depending on what the strain is, defines how sick we get with them. And we'll, we'll be looking to them. They're ahead of the curve, so to speak, related to what they're seeing how they have responded uh, with their mitigation procedures, and then what they'll see as they loosen those. I hope that helps, Jake. It does. Thank you. Thank you. Let's go to Nola from Kansas City, Missouri. Nola, you're on the show. 
Hi there. So I just kind of on a little more uplifting note, I was home a couple days ago and I got a phone call from a friend and he said, are you home? And I said, yes. And he said, come on out because we're here. And he was out with his friend walking their dog. And I went out the door and we stood there and talked to each other, obviously more than six feet apart. And, you know, it was so much nicer than talking to somebody on the phone. So <laughs> we can still see each other in person. And now I have a, you know, when I go for a walk, I see whose house I'm walking by and see if they're home and say hi. And it just really was so uplifting. And then I saw a mother and daughter each in their own car with their windows rolled down talking to each other, like more than six feet apart. And, yeah. you know, it really face to face, it really gives you something that no amount of talking on the phone can do. Nola, I think that's a, a very good comment. I really appreciate you calling in here this morning. I want to take a call now from David Smith. He's the CEO of the Associated Wholesale Grocers Organization. David, it's nice to have you. Good morning. Good morning. He's joining us from Kansas City, Kansas this morning. How is Associated Wholesale Grocers doing, David, when, when it comes to home deliveries? What kind of spike are you seeing? Uh, what about your uh, the grocery store's ability to handle the demand out there? Well, there's, you know, the big push for everybody to get two weeks of supplies really put a strain on the food supply. I bet. I'm happy to say it's recovering well. Uh, of course, from the supermarkets, uh, home delivery, uh, click and collect, where consumers are coming to the stores and pick it up, all of those are up. So um, it, it's just like an ice storm or snowstorm, just longer. It's, mm -hmm. inf it's food insecurity and it's rational. But after the, you know, consumers have their two-week safety stock, just buy what you need. Don't hoard. Leave some for your neighbor. Is there any reason to think, David, uh, that we may be facing some serious food shortages going forward or not? No, there is not. There's plenty of food. We aren't going to run out. A few items uh, may be in short supply temporarily, and some of the variety that you used to see uh, won't be there on a day-in, a day-out day basis. But overall, there's plenty of food, and we're receiving thousands of trucks and shipping thousands of trucks out to our stores each week. So, no, we're not going to run out of food. This is a basic infrastructure, and this is an industry that's going to continue to operate. I'm wondering if you're experiencing you know, any difficulties when it comes to getting products these days? Of course, yeah. So um, if you can imagine that um, the type of buildup that you have for the ice storm or snowstorm, that's sustained and multiplied for multiple days. So it, it's taken all of the, the buffer out of the, the amount. But after consumers get that two-week supply built, uh, we're catching up. And so over the coming days, we're going to continue to have food supply. And the manufacturers were caught, uh, many of them were caught, uh, you know, at a surprise. So there's a lot of basics that they did not have, but they're going to be focusing on getting the top sellers back on the shelf as quickly as possible. And we're picking those products up and bringing them in. I assume that means toilet paper. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> How are we doing with toilet paper? There's been such a run. Yeah, so uh, companies like Procter & Gamble, where they had about 64 different packages, uh, they're going to focus on the top four. Mm. So it's going to be a limited uh, number of uh, items that will be available, but you're going to have plenty. So uh, while it may not be the color or smell that you're necessarily looking for, uh, there's going to be toilet paper. <laughs> uh, give us a sense of the types of products you supply to stores in the Kansas City area, David. 
Yes, thank you. Uh, so AWG's member retailers like Price Chopper, Sunfresh, Hen House, Country Mart, Thriftway, all of those stores, we supply them with everything pretty much wall-to-wall other than products that's delivered by a locally, local delivery man like beer or chips or bread. Uh, so it's all of those products that they are supplied by us. Um, is what's the what's the one thing you want consumers in the greater Kansas City area to know regarding uh, keeping grocery store shelves stocked? Yeah, so it's back to what I had said earlier, which is that. Um, we want everybody to follow the advice and to have their two weeks of stock in case that they need to self-quarantine or they're already self-quarantined. But after that point, buy as you normally would. Buy it based on what your needs are with multiple shopping trips each week so that your neighbor can have food. And, and that's what will allow us to be able to maintain the supply chain for everybody. Well, what can you tell us, David, about how safe the food is? Yeah, so I will tell you that within the nation, we have the the finest uh, food supply chain in the entire world. It's an envy of of all the other nations. And there's tremendous standards that are already put in place uh, to maintain that, the safe uh, food uh, supply chain. And so that doesn't change. And so there's tremendous integrity in the supply chain itself, and there's no known issues with it. It's really just about staffing and being able to keep the, the store going and we have lots of openings um, that so people that may just be displaced uh, by this we we have openings in our distribution centers we have openings for truck drivers and all of our stores are hiring so um, the, the staffing those is key that's David Smith he's CEO of the Associated Wholesale Grocers based in Kansas City Kansas David sure appreciate your time keep going okay thank you thank you Again, if you're just joining us, you're listening to up-to-date special coverage, coronavirus in Kansas City. We have a panel of terrific experts sitting here in front of me uh, talking about a whole array of issues connected to this pandemic. Katie Kreeshauser is with Kansas City Center for Anxiety and Treatment. Dr. Marianne Jackson with the UMKC School of Medicine. Jim McDonald is here of, from the United Way of Greater Kansas City. Our phone number, 816-235-2888, or tweet us at KC. You are up to date. The Facebook community, uh, Dr. Jackson, is wondering how are our local hospitals doing? Are they seeing patients with respiration issues, even though they may not be able to test for COVID yet? What can you tell us there? I think our local hospitals are gearing up and working 24-7 to make sure that they're prepared. Things that they are doing is canceling non-emergent appointments, canceling elective surgeries. They're making sure that they're sending non-essential personnel home and that they are ensuring that their workforce has the personal protective equipment that includes surgical masks uh, that they and gowns and gloves that they need to take care of patients. They're making sure that they're addressing the mental health toll that this is taking on their staff and their uh, uh, their non-clinical staff and their clinical uh, first responding healthcare workers. So it is a multi-pronged approach. Every one of our institutions is in high gear right at this point. And keep in mind, this is at the very beginning where we're just identifying a few cases at this point. 
One the, big concern is keeping those healthcare workers healthy themselves, right? That's absolutely correct. And this influenza season has been a, really a very significant one. It has it started early, lasted a long time, had an unusual uh, strain that circulated at the very beginning. It is just now winding down. But because it's been so long and uh, extended, particularly hitting children uh, hard in contrast to coronavirus, uh, we, we are running out of some of the personal protection of equipment that we desperately need at this point. So one of the things that we're doing within the state of Missouri, uh, I know that the governor has uh, found a way to release some of this PPE, which is the personal protective equipment, from the federal stockpile mm-hmm. to distribute within our state. So, so there are not only the preparatory, preparatory factors that are multi-pronged, but there are uh, the other uh, opportunities to access resources that we need right now. Let's go back to some phone calls here. Let's go to Judy from Overland Park. Judy, you're on up-to-date special coverage, coronavirus in Kansas City. Good morning. Yeah, thank you. I'm wondering how we will know what uh, when our anxiety level has moved over into the dysfunctional. There's that anxiety level where we know to be on guard and take care of ourselves, but then it can ease over into the uh, over-the-top level. So what should we be looking for in ourselves to know to draw back from? Boy, great question. Katie Kriegshauser. That is a wonderful question. So I, I get this quite often. How do I know when I'm experiencing normal anxiety in response to a stressor? And how do I know when it's moving over into more clinical anxiety? So how we define a clinical anxiety disorder is interference in functioning and a degree of um, intensity of anxiety that is not typical for you. So Mm -hmm. is it interfering in your ability to maintain your social relationships, engage effectively in your work, things like that. So a significant change in functioning. And I think we're all going to have to adapt to, you know, what is what is our new functioning at work, at home. But if you're not able to maintain those relationships effectively, that's where we know an anxiety, uh, anxiety has moved from normal to possibly clinical levels. Jim McDonald with United Way of Greater Kansas City. Can you help folks who maybe can't afford to get uh, – to go to, to go to regular therapy, can United Way help with that need? Well, uh, our community is fortunate to have a number of community mental health services, uh, community mental health organizations uh, throughout the metro area, um, and 211 uh, can help uh, a person get connected uh, to one of those uh, organizations. Um, you know, every program will have eligibility requirements that, you know, will need to be met. Uh, but, yes, there is a strong... Uh, network of mental health providers that serve low-income and otherwise disadvantaged populations. Um, It doesn't have the capacity that it needs, that system, um, but the system does a pretty incredible job uh, with the resources that it has. If people call 211, they can get access and get help with that. Yes. Uh, Bob from Blue Springs writes us with this question. He's told there's not enough ventilators. Why aren't we making more, and why isn't the government increasing production, Dr. Jackson? I know that's a big concern nationally uh, uh, about that particular issue. There's not a good answer to that right now. We know that it is an issue. Uh, What we don't have a fix on completely is how severe this pandemic will be. And there are certain um, levels at which we will not have the number of 
uh, ventilators that we need to care for patients. So that is part of the reason that these public health measures that we're asking everyone to take are so, so important because if we can at least spread out the number of cases that we see over the coming weeks to months, then that is one way to mitigate because we're not going to magically produce ventilators within the next three to four weeks. Right. We go back to some calls here. Becky from Overland Park. Becky, you're on the show. Oh, thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I just had a, a comment about the social distancing phrase. I'm not sure where exactly that came from. Um, I think it would be good if we could change that to physical distancing because we need more social connection right now than more than ever. And that phrase just... Um, puts a mindset out there that we can't be social. We're being social in other ways with phone calls and emails and and um, sharing in that way. So we can't lose our social connection, but we do have to keep that physical distance. Interesting point, Katie. I, I think that's a wonderful suggestion. I love that switching to physical distancing um, because it is really crucial in this time where we're all feeling this sense of anxiety and we we don't want isolation to compound that we need to band together and create strong communities right now dr jackson in terms of public health language that is a common language that we use but i echo exactly what katie said uh we need to understand that we're talking about physical distancing and i've even heard public uh health experts say we need to socially distance ourselves but not emotionally distance Mm -hmm. ourselves from each other Mm -hmm. and that is exactly what the caller is said, and it is a very, very good comment. Paul from uh, Platte City. Paul, you're on up to date. Good morning. Yes, the coronavirus, I understand, leads to pneumonia in some people. Is that correct? That is correct. Does the pneumonia vaccine, like Prevnar, have any utility in that secondary infection? That is a wonderful uh, question. So, Viral pneumonia, this is a virus, and the type of pneumonia this particular virus is causing is a little bit different uh, from other types of pneumonia. Uh, But we fully know that after a viral pneumonia of any type, any type of viral pneumonia, that bacterial complications can occur. The pneumonia vaccine actually Uh, targets a particular type of bacteria that can complicate viral pneumonia. That's why the emphasis on making sure that individuals stay current on their vaccines. So, yes, you're right. Uh, If you believe that you are a candidate, because not everyone is a candidate for the pneumonia vaccine, it is for uh, special risk groups and certain age groups, contact your doctor by phone. Okay. We're going to leave our conversation. I got the information. Okay, Paul. Thank you for the call. I have the viruses. Yes. Appreciate that. I want to leave our conversation there. I want to thank our very good guests today for coming in and sharing their uh, expertise and insights with us. You just heard the voice of Dr. Mary Ann Jackson. She's with the UMKC School of Medicine. Katie Kriegshauser was also here, director of the Kansas City Center for Anxiety and Treatment. Jim McDonald with the United Way of Greater Kansas City. Thank you all very much. Sure appreciate your time today. Thank you, Steve. Okay, we'll be back tomorrow. I'm Steve Kraske, and you're listening to Up to Date, special coverage, coronavirus in Kansas City.